We're going to meet a guy this weekend, and he's a pretty important guy. Uh, he's got two names, and I'm going to get it wrong. Uh, the first couple of talks, I'm going to call him Abram, and by the time we get to the end, his name's going to change to Abraham, but you can see how many times you spot me say the word Abraham in the first talk. I'm sure there'll be quite a few, uh, but we're going to meet Abraham, okay? A pretty significant guy as we uh, come through these talks uh, this weekend. And we're going to be looking at a theme which is really strong in the Abraham narratives. It's the gospel. It's the gospel of substitutionary atonement. It's how Christ is the substitute for our sins. You say, really, in Genesis? Yep, really in Genesis. So before we do that, let's pray as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would teach us this weekend. We thank you for this man, Abram. We thank you for the amazing things that you've done through electing this one individual. Teach us, we pray, to marvel at your grace and to trust in your faithfulness, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you been to America? Do you remember when you arrived in America? Has anyone had anybody in customs in America smile at you? Not at all. Not at LAX. My first time coming into America, I came from the other direction. I actually flew from South Africa into America, and my first port of call was JFK Airport in New York City. It was about 97, somewhere around there. And I was travelling with a group of Presbyterian ministers. It was about a wild time. Some of them have spoken on your, on your getaway. Kevin Murray. Has anyone spoken here? Do you know Kevin? Does anyone know Craig Tucker? One or two. Minister of Scots Church in Sydney. C.S. Tang, me. We were just on this trip. And we were going to go to New York City, or we were going to New York City, and one of the things we were doing was going to Redeemer Presbyterian Church where Tim Keller is the minister before he was famous. We got there first. And we were told by Redeemer Presbyterian Church that when we arrived at the airport there would be somebody there to meet us. That's a common experience for me. So we came through customs and there was a very well-dressed man standing with a sign, those signs that said, see Tucker. I was travelling with Craig Tucker. So I thought, great, there's our lift. So we went over to this very well-dressed man, and you can verify this story by all of those men. That's why I dropped their names in. And we said, here we are. He said, just go out onto the sidewalk, which means footpath, and I will go and get the car, and we'll head off. He said, okay, that was great. We went out onto the sidewalk, I kid you not, you can verify the story. A stretched limo turned up. Polished, black, seen Crocodile Dundee with the boomerang on the back, it had one of those. There was a TV inside of it. There was a minibar. And he, this very polite, very well-dressed gentleman took our bags, put them in the boot, opened the door for us, and this is great. This is how they treat their ministers in America. This is wonderful. We headed off, heading towards the freeway, heading into New York, and the driver said to us, where to, gentlemen? The Marriott? The Hilton? The Holiday Inn? My travel companions were thinking this is pretty good, but I didn't believe it, and I turned to him and I said, are you from Redeemer Presbyterian Church? And he turned to us and said, 
are you Chris Tucker from Bermuda? As we were heading off onto the freeway. Fortunately, he was the first American we saw to smile. He saw the funny side of it. He did drive us back to the terminal where we, it was February, it was freezing cold, it was sleet all over the place. We stood on the sidewalk, someone turned up 10 minutes late after that, running up to see us saying, are you the guys we've got to meet from Australia? He said, sure. He said, I haven't got a car, we've got to walk about half a mile to the bus stop and then we've got to get, they, they take the free, and we head off. I thought, yes, you come from Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And that was my greeting into America. We're going to be looking today at a guy who hops in a car and he hops in a car with God and he sets out on an amazing journey and his name is Still Abram. In fact, I looked this up on Wikipedia because that is the source of all authority. There are 7.5 billion people in the world approximately. 4.5 billion of them, at least nominally, follow an Abrahamic faith. Islam, Judaism, Christianity. That's a pretty significant figure, isn't it, in what's happened. And yet we don't all read the text the same. If we went into a synagogue, if we went into a mosque, if we went into a church, we'd hear about this same guy, but we're going to come to different results. So how we read the texts are going to be very important. And I'm going to do this explicitly in the first talk and I'm going to do it implicitly in the following talks. What I have with me are three pairs of glasses. The first pair of glasses I have here, I'm just putting them on, are my reading glasses for close reading. The first pair of glasses I'm going to put on is going to look at the story at the time of Abraham. Okay? That's the very first, close reading at the time of Abraham. I've got three points, and just to warn you, my three points are not equal in length. My first point goes for a lot, lot longer than the two and three, so when I say, and it's now time for the second point, you don't have to have that sigh. After we have read this through a reading glasses at the time of Abraham, I'm going to take these glasses off. I'm going to put these glasses on. These are not my reading glasses. These are my regular glasses to sort of see in between. Because who wrote Genesis? Books of Moses. And Moses lived 400 years after Abraham. And this book was written for a context that was 400 years later. So the second reading of the text that we're going to do is what does this mean for the readers, the recipients, 400 years later? Abraham's time, Moses' times, but by way, we're Christians, aren't we? And we believe that the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. So I'm going to, having used the reading glasses and having used the regular glasses, I'm going to take these off, and the third set of glasses I'm going to put on are distance glasses. And I'm going to read this story Christologically in the light of the New Testament. And they're basically our three talks, three glasses. And I'm going to be doing that explicitly in the first talk, as I said, and implicitly in every talk. So let's put on our reading glasses and let's see what's happening in Abraham's life. The story at the time of Abraham. Genesis 12 comes after Genesis 11 and Genesis 1 to 11 is all about the spread of sin. 
and the world is ending up being a pretty dysfunctional place. Back in Genesis 3, we had the Garden of Eden, and we had Adam and Eve, and we had the fall and sin happening in individuals. But it doesn't take very long, and sin starts to impact families. If you've got problems with your kids, let me say two words to you, Cain and Abel. Okay, the impact upon families. It actually got so bad that by the time we get to the time of Noah, God's sorry that he even made the place. And he looks for somebody who is righteous on the earth. Until we end up in Genesis chapter 11 on the plains of Shinar, where the whole world is in rebellion against God. And the whole world is seeking in its own ingenuity to build a tower that will reach up to the heavens. Doesn't sound that different from today, does it? How are we going to solve it? Well, here's the answer. Election. What do you mean by election? We're going to have an election soon, aren't we, in Australia? Australia must be the only country in the world where our choice is between ScoMo and Albo. Honestly, truly, I mean, most countries respect their leaders and how we speak about them, but who are you going to vote for? ScoMo, don't tell me, I don't want to know, ScoMo or Albo? Are you going to make a decision based on them? Or are you going to make a decision based on how their policies will affect them? I hope it'll be on the latter, I do. We want to live in a good Australia. Election is always about choosing the one for the sake of the many. It works in federal politics, and it certainly works in the Bible. And so God comes to this guy, living in Ur. You might know where Ur is. I'll tell you a modern name for Ur. Heard about Basra in southern Iraq? That's our best guess. It's down there. It's quite a wealthy city. And he says to this guy, I'm going to choose you. Jump in the car. We're heading off to an unknown to you destination, but a known destination to me. So if you struggle with this doctrine of election in the Bible, or the doctrine of predestination, and I know lots of Christians do, I want to remind you it's not just about you. God always chooses the one that through the one will go blessing for you. That's why God chose you. And God chooses this God. It's not you. Of the uh, children from Adam and Eve, if you've read the story up to now, God chooses Seth and not Cain. Of the children of Seth, we know that God chooses Noah and his family. Noah has three sons, remember? Shem, Ham, Japheth, well done. And he chooses Shem. That's why people of that part of the world are called Shemites, Semites, the children of Shem. And then of the children of Shem, God now chooses this man, Abram. But it doesn't stop there. Just to tell you, you spoiler alert, Abram's going to have two sons. We'll hear about that tomorrow. Isaac and Ishmael. He's going to choose Isaac and not Ishmael. From Isaac's children, he's going to choose Jacob and not Esau. From Jacob's children, he's going to choose the line of Judah. From the line of Judah, he's going to have an anointed king, he's going to be David. From David's line, we're going to have God's, uh, God's anointed, who is great David's greatest son, who's going to be our Lord Jesus. In one sense, they are all the chosen of God. 
God chooses the one so that the blessings will go to the many. And what is the problem? The problem of Genesis 1 to 11 is dysfunctionality. The problem of sin is going to be solved by election. So why does God choose Abraham? Was he any better? Well, Joshua 24, verse 2, I think you can see this in your outline, some of these verses. Uh, it says, in Joshua 24, verse 2, it says, Long ago our fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, and Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nabor, and they served other gods. Who was Abram when God chose him? I'll tell you who he was. He was an idolater. He was serving other gods. Did God choose Abram because Abram had any merit in himself? No. Why did he choose Abram? Here's the answer. Because he did. And why did he choose you? And we read in verse 4 that Abram is 75 years old at this point. Not really a time of fresh beginnings for most of us. He leaves Ur. He's not a refugee. We know enough about Ur to know it was a very prosperous city. And he hops in a car and God gives him his promise. I'm going to read it in full for us because it's a very important promise. Follow with me in your Bibles. I've got the ESV if you've got something different. Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, that's from Ur, and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonours you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now keep looking at it while I speak. There are three parts in that promise. See if you can see it. The first part in that promise is land. Can you see it there? See the word land? Number one, very important. He's going to give you a land. Number two, in my Bible, it says the word nation. I'll tell you what that means. Children, a family, an inheritance. And number three is the third part of the promise, blessing. And that third part has got two prongs to it. He's going to bless the line of Abram and through the line of Abram, he's going to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. So what are the three parts? Let's do it together. Kids talk, okay? Number one, land. Number two, children, nation, well done. Number three, beautiful, well done. Very interesting here. If you want to do this this afternoon, there's no time to do it now. I'd rather you listen to me. But if you go through verses one to three, you'll actually find that the word bless happens five times. Don't do it now. And then if you read Genesis 1 to 11, when you go home this afternoon, if you want to, you've got something else to do, read Genesis 1 to 11, you'll actually find the word curse happens five times. What's the answer to the curse? God's blessing to Abraham. Abram. By faith, Abraham obeyed, we read in Hebrews, and he was, and he was called to go to a place and he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And so the story goes on. The story proceeds, we're down to about verse 6, that, that Abram's left and he's gone off and he's going to the place of the Canaanites and there's people in the land. 
And they're not just going to give up and say, well, come in, take our land. No, it's quite difficult. But we see in verses 6 to 8 that Abram builds altars to God as he goes and claims the land, claims the land. He probably pulls down Canaanite altars when he replaces them with God-worshipping altars. Verse 7, he calls upon the name of the Lord. He fulfills the promise to the land. And in verse 9, very importantly, he goes all the way to the Negev. The Negev is the desert right down in the south of Israel, all the way to the Negev, because that's what God has called him to do. You know, I, I, I spend all my time with theological students, and when they come into college, it's always the same. They're always telling the same stories. They're saying, oh, why do you want to come to college? Oh, there's great need in the world. I want to go to deepest, darkest Africa. I want to go to the farthest reaches where people aren't, aren't heard and all the rest of it. I want to preach the gospel. Wonderful, come to college. By the end of fourth year, when they're about to be appointed, they're saying, I'm not sure if I want to go any further out than Strathfield. The coffee's not very good out there, and I'm worried about my parents. And I want to say to them all the time, brother, sister, God has called you to take the gospel all the way to the Negev, all the way to the end, to the extent of God's purposes. They might say, well, there's a great need in Sydney. Sure, there's a great need in Sydney. But when Paul goes to Damascus, after he's converted, there was a great need in Damascus. But God sends him out. I've heard many people who are getting older in life. Maybe you're in your mid-70s and you're saying, you know, I've been serving God for decades and decades. It's time for someone else to take over. Here's my answer to you. All the way to the Negev. All the way. God has called us to bless people where he would send us and where he would place us. And Abram continues all the way to the Negev at 75 years of age. Well, if I finish the story there, you're saying, isn't that wonderful? I'm not like Abram. He's a pretty good bloke. But as is often the case in Scripture, there is a twist. And there is an amazing twist in this story. By the way, what were the three parts of the, of the promise? Ready? You are awesome. Did you notice that in the reading that followed from verse 10? Because a problem happens in the land. There is a famine. It's very important. And where do Abram and Sarah go? Egypt. Is that the land that God was giving them? They have already forsaken the promise. This is the land you were to go to. But the first bit of trouble, and what do they do? They pack their bags and they're off to Egypt. They have forsaken the promise. And on the way down there, Sarai, and there's a 10-year difference between Abram and Sarai. She's 65 years of age, but she's, she's an attractive woman. And it's nice for husbands to say to their wives, you're attractive, isn't it? It's what women want. Is that right? That's what Abram does. He'd read all the how to be a successful husband books. He was going down to Egypt and he said, you're such a good looking woman. Once they see you, they'll give me a hard time so that it may go well for me. Say that you're my sister so they can take you off and do whatever they do to you so it'll be okay for me. By the way, 
through whom was Abram going to have children? Sarai. He's forsaken part two of the promise. Did you see that? He's not that good a bloke after all, is he? And what was the third part of the promise? The third part of the promise was blessing. But when we get to the end of the chapter at verse 17, does God send blessing? No, we read verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah. He has forsaken the land, he has forsaken the children, he has forsaken the blessings. Abram has been faithless. He is the chosen one, elected. But of course, the fulfilment of God's election never depends on the one who is elected. It always depends on the one who does the electing. And so what does God do? Look at the end of the chapter, 1220. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, land. That's what the people of Moses' generation needed to hear. God is still fulfilling his purposes. Not because Abram was faithful, in fact he was far from faithful. But because God is faithful. See the parallels? Let me take my glasses off for a second. Let me put on my third set of glasses. We come to a part of the Bible called the New Testament. And the first person we meet in the New Testament, by and large, is Abraham. We open the pages of the New Testament, what do we have? A genealogy that begins back with Abraham. And then as we open the next few pages of the New Testament in Matthew 1 and Matthew 2, do you remember the story? There's this puppet king. His name is King Herod. And he hears that there is this new guy who is, they're claiming, is the king of the Jews. And so an angel appears to Joseph and to Mary and they flee to... In fact, if you read in Matthew's Gospel there, it actually talks about the Gospel about of Egypt, have I called my son? Back in Exodus 4.22, Israel is called God's firstborn son. This is a retelling of the Abraham story. This is a retelling of the Moses story. This is a telling again of a story that goes from slavery to freedom in the Exodus from Egypt. Well, this wicked king, King Herod, dies and Joseph and Mary hear about this. You can read this in the first couple of chapters of Matthew. And so they start heading back, following the footsteps of their forebears, but they hear that there is a wicked king called Archelaus who has become the king of the southern kingdom. And so where is Jesus brought up? Nazareth. As Jesus is brought up in Nazareth, he comes to maturity and then he goes to a place that was very significant at the time of the Exodus. By the way, backtrack. Did Moses make it into the land? Yes or yes and no? Yes or no? 
Good. I love this. You can all come to theological college. That's great. Because he, he does and he doesn't. Moses does not make it into the land. That's the correct answer. Well done if you said no. And yet Moses does make it into the land. Well done if you said yes. Because there arises a second Moses. So Moses doesn't get in there, but the second Moses gets in there. And what is his name in the Old Testament? Joshua. And when Joshua goes into the land, he crosses over the Jordan. Do you remember all that? The second Joshua. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 18. That angel comes and appears to Joseph, still in Matthew's gospel, and says to Joseph, you're going to have a boy, and you will call him, Matthew 121, Yeshua. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name, Yeshua, Jesus. Because who is Jesus going to be? He's going to be the second Moses. Who was the second Moses? Was it Joshua or was it Jesus? And the answer is yes. They both are. And after having been brought up in Nazareth, and he was up in Nazareth because things were pretty tough, dark, stuff, we actually get this Yeshua guy at Jordan. And as he leads the people across the Jordan, he is baptised the problem that led to going to Egypt. Sin. You say Jesus was baptised for the forgiveness of sins? Absolutely yes. Because Jesus' baptism was Jesus' anointing for the task that he had come to do, which was the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was not baptised for his sins. He was baptised in Jordan as anointing for the baptism for our sins that will culminate in the work on the cross. And so we see a story that God, despite the evil, there's no other word for it with Abram, the evil of, of what he does to his wife, despite his evil, God's purposes are true. Despite the grumbling of the Moses generation, God's purposes are true. Here's a question for you. If you were Pontius Pilate, and you had all the evidence about Jesus before you. Would you set him free or put him to death? It's a really hard question. Because you know what the right answer is. The right answer is he's innocent. I should set him free. But if you set Jesus free, what hope do you have? Here's an amazing truth. God takes the evil of Abraham. God takes the evil of Moses' generation. God takes the ignominy of the cross and uses that as a demonstration of his grace and justice, of bringing us back from Egypt, to bring us back from the dysfunctionality of our sin to the freedom that is found in Christ. And God has chosen Abram, that through Abram and his seed that will eventually be the Lord Jesus, that blessings will go to the nations. Some of you are Jewish, maybe, not many. Most of us here are Gentiles. And the blessings have come to us because of the promise to Abram. Paul puts it like this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, 
Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. God has rescued you if you are a Christian because of his faithfulness to the promise to Abraham. How does he ask you to respond with that? Well, exactly how I had to respond to New York Airport. By faith. I followed him to the railway station and travelling from a place of slavery. Never forget that. Egypt was a place of slavery. To a place of liberation. To a place of death. To a place of life and resurrection. From a place of judgment to a place of forgiveness and renewal. And God does this through the choosing of one not because he was the elite, but because he was the elect. Not because he was faithful, but because God is faithful. And the promises to Abram in the gospel continue to work their way through, even to our, our very day today.